0: So thank you for all your love and support, and occasionally I do this when I preach, and so today um, I'm dedicating this message to my mother-in-law, Karina. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence, your truth, that you are God with us. Through the wonders and beauty of life and through the difficulties as well, you're always with us. Thank you for your grace that is always sufficient. And right now, we just open our hearts to you, Jesus. You would seek to speak to us through your word. And we do this now in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. amen. I'm going to do my best to get through all this. Thank you for understanding that I'm a little less prepared than usual, a little more raw than usual, perhaps more emotional than usual as well. <laughs> Acts chapter two and Acts chapter 10. How many know what today is on the calendar, church calendar? Yes. Pentecost Sunday and all the people who have been card carrying Pentecostals for their life say, denom, God, a church calendar day. There's no Baptist Sunday, there's no Missionary Alliance Sunday, there's no Mennonite Sunday, but there is a Pentecost Sunday. Um, I'm just being goofy. Um, It is a day of significance um, because of the Spirit of God that has moved into our lives. Thank you so much, Joanne. And Acts chapter 2 is probably the most common place people go when they think about Pentecost, and we're going to spend a moment there. But uh, we're going to pivot from chapter 2 into chapter 10, and I, I hope many of you will see something that perhaps you haven't noticed before. I guess the question is, When did Pentecost occur? Was there one or were there more? And could today be a day for another Pentecost? Does this fit within you've got a friend with me, in me? That might be another fair question, and I think the answer is yes. Excuse me. Acts chapter 2, some of you have heard me talk out of the book of Acts or Luke recently, so I'll just be brief to say that Acts is written by um, an ancient educated fellow who was a doctor named Luke, and in his gospel of Luke, he wrote a two-volume work, Luke and then Acts, In Luke, the themes all move towards Jerusalem, where Jesus is crucified and then rises from the dead. And then in the book of Acts, he talks about Jesus continuing his work after his ascension through the church, and everything starts in Jerusalem but moves globally away from Jerusalem so that the whole earth can become filled with the glory of God. In Acts chapter 2, we find the day of Pentecost, beginning in verse 1. It says this, "...when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place." Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So there was a powerful movement of the Spirit upon the church that had gathered together to pray. Now, what happens after this? It was a bit of an unusual and surprising event. And so, if you, we're not going to read the whole of chapter 2, but people are wondering what's happening, not just the people in that moment, but the people around that moment. They're hearing messages and words of praise in other languages, some of which are familiar to them. And so, they ask a question, what does this mean? And often when God does miraculous signs, it It does something to the hearts of people who are around. They're wondering, was God doing something? What is he saying about himself? What does this mean? Peter, who is one of the early leaders in the church, steps up and begins sharing the gospel story of Jesus. Now remember, where is this happening? In Jerusalem. So the environment is quite familiar with a lot to do with the story of God and the ancient scriptures And they're even already quite familiar with Jesus, but he's bringing a compelling way of presenting how Jesus is the one who embodies, ultimately, who God is. And as we talked about last fall in this series we called The Story of God in Five Trees, God is the one who gives life, who gives freedom. He is the one who is faithful. He, through Jesus Christ, provides forgiveness. And through his resurrection, promises renewal. All things will be made new. And so there's a gospel message given by Peter. And after the gospel message, the crowd that surrounds what's going on asks another question. Their first question is, what does this mean? Their second question is, well, what do we do? And so there's an invitation. Change the way that you're thinking. Turn from your way of living and turn towards Jesus. Be baptized and follow him. And 3,000 were added that day. And then chapter 2 ends this way. We come to this text often. It's so beautiful. It's just if you've ever wondered what was life in the early church like, here's a small summary that I think is punchy and powerful. Verse 42, chapter 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods. They gave to anyone as they had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily, those who were being saved. Let me just offer a comment about friendship as we look at that particular text. When you read about that being church life, would you, would you say that it seemed like that church got pretty good at being friends with each other? They were around each other a lot. They were eating together a lot. Now, if you're an idealist, you imagine that. And you think, I'm sure everything was perfect all the time. Uh, you know what? Read Paul's letters. He writes what he writes because things were not perfect. The churches were messy, but they were committed to each other in relationship and in friendship. Two of the most important priorities in the life of the church after worship are discipleship and evangelism. And what we read about in the end of Acts chapter 2 is how the church functioned robustly in discipleship and evangelism. And I present to you today this idea that both are intrinsically linked to friendship. Discipleship happens best Through relationship, yes, you can have a discipleship class and you can learn some things. But you can, in a class setting, be evasive. You can miss out on applying things. You can fail to grow in a class setting. But when you're in friendship and close relationship with others and you're surrounding your friendship around Jesus and his word, it produces discipleship in you. It said in this text that people were being added to the church daily People were coming to Christ daily. What does that tell you? The church didn't just hold friendships exclusively with people within their church family. They maintained and developed friendships with people who were not yet followers of Jesus. And through the bridges of friendship with people who didn't know Jesus yet, the Lord was able to add daily to the church those who were beginning to follow Jesus. Friendship. Was crucial for the discipleship work of the early church and the evangelistic work of the early church. And friends, it's crucial for your discipleship and your witness in the Comox Valley today as well. Now, that's the Acts 2 account of Pentecost. Was there only one Pentecost, or could there be more? Flip with me to Acts chapter, I know the screen said 10. I actually want you to go to the last verse of chapter 9. Last verse of chapter 9. I know we are generally a linear culture, and we like to, if we're reading Scripture, read chapter by chapter or verse by verse, which there's nothing wrong with that. But um, it can be helpful if you're beginning to read a chapter, read the last couple of verses of the chapter in front of it, especially if it's in a book of the Bible where there's some narrative going on, because there may have been some clues at the end of the previous chapter that set up what you're going into, and this is one of those cases. What's the last verse in Acts chapter 9? tell you in a second, let me just give you some context. The gospel's been moving around from Jerusalem outward, 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 outward. Peter, who continues to be such an important leader in the early church, is on some journeys where he's supporting, serving, and helping other new churches and other groups of new Christians, and he's helping others be reached who haven't been reached yet with the gospel of Jesus. And he's traveling to a few towns. He ends up in a place called Joppa, and listen to verse 43 now. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner a tanner named Simon. Isn't it interesting how the Bible just leaves little details there? And sometimes we might just think, well, I guess everybody back then knew who Simon the tanner was, and that's why Luke felt it was worth writing that in there. But I want to just invite you to think with me backward a bit. Imagining you're part of a Jewish heritage, which many of the first readers and hearers of the book of Acts and some of the, most of the first Christians had a Jewish background. When they heard Luke write this, when they heard somebody read this in their church settings, if they had a Jewish heritage, this caught their attention. Oh, Peter, who had a robust Jewish heritage, stayed where? At the home of a fellow named Simon the Tanner. Why does that have any significance? This Simon fellow had a profession, tanning animal skins, which in the Jewish context of the day uh, would have been quite a ceremonially unclean work. And this work, it's not like he had a shop somewhere else. It likely happened in his home, which meant uh, Peter was staying in the home that to Jewish people would have been considered ceremonially unclean. Unclean. So this is sort of eyebrow-raising for the, anybody with a Jewish background as they hear where Peter is, like, whoa, 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 Peter. We know you follow Jesus, but you're still Jewish in background. Uh, that's an unclean setting. What's going on here, Peter? That sets up the next chapter nicely. Read with me into chapter 10, um, verse 1. It says, at Caesarea, so Caesarea was a town... Um, If you look at Joppa and Caesarea on a map, they're actually very close to the distance between Comox and Campbell River. So he's in Comox and then now we're talking about Campbell River. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. Let's just stop there for a moment. I wanna talk about the place mentioned there and the person mentioned there. The place mentioned there is Caesarea, coastal town and um, for anybody with a Jewish background, it was hated. They hated the notion and idea of Caesarea. Caesarea had a relatively low population of uh, people of ethnic or religious background that was rooted in Judaism. Why? Because when Rome was advancing its empire in all its treachery and oppression and evil, when they took over what became the province of Judea, which included the people in land that belonged to God they set Caesarea to be the capital for the region there so to anybody who had a jewish background Caesarea was the epicenter of the enemy's local work why would you want to live there why would you want to be close to Caesarea so not good feelings about Caesarea now who's Cornelius we've learned from this passage that he's a centurion in the roman army so Is he Jewish by background, is he Christian? No, no. Uh, Ethnically, he's from a different background. He is associated with Rome. So here we have a powerful figure who's leading enemy armies. So Caesarea, Cornelius. If you had a Jewish background in the time of Acts and you hear chapter 10 verse one, about Caesarea and about Cornelius, do you have like happy feelings about that? Probably not. You're like, oh, Caesarea, no, 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 no. The epicenter of the enemy. You know, Caesarea would have been a symbol of the oppression of Rome being thrust towards God's people and the world at its time. A centurion would have been a figure represented, a symbol of somebody who was enforcing that kind of evil. So chapter 10, verse 1, does not bring about a lot of good feelings for people that had Jewish background, but it carries on. Let's read on all the way till verse 7. In verse 2, it says this, Of Cornelius, he and his family were devout, and they were God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need, and he prayed to God regularly. One day, at about 3 in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord, he asked? The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send people, send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying at the with Simon the tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was with his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. Again, there's a lot of text in front of us. We won't read it right now, but if you've read through this text or chapter before, you'll understand that what happens is Luke goes from that scene back to Joppa where Peter is. And Peter goes to a rooftop to begin just having a time of prayer. It could have been that lunch was coming and his stomach was starting to growl. We don't know if that was an influence or not. But he's close to the Lord in prayer. And right around the same time that Cornelius is having this experience, Peter enters into a new experience where he's in a vision or in a trance seeing a big sheet, like a bed sheet, carrying all kinds of animals that to the Jewish people of the day were considered unclean. Like, don't touch them, don't eat them. And it was being lowered down toward him several times, and God was telling him in this dream to eat, and specifically, uh, this might offend some of the vegetarians, I'm sorry, but Jesus said in the dream, "Get up, Peter, kill and eat." And all the hunters said, "Amen <laughs> um, And Peter, speaking on behalf of the vegetarian, said, "Surely not, Lord." Uh, but then the Lord insisted and THE EXPERIENCE HAPPENED SEVERAL TIMES OVER, AND YES, THIS IS PART OF GOD AFFIRMING TO HIS PEOPLE THAT WHAT WAS ONCE UNDER CEREMONIAL LAW, EATING RESTRICTION-WISE, IS NOW CHANGED THROUGH JESUS CHRIST, BUT THERE WAS A BIGGER THING GOING ON, BECAUSE JESUS SPEAKS TO PETER AND SAYS, LISTEN, IF I'VE CALLED SOMETHING CLEAN, DON'T CALL IT UNCLEAN, ESSENTIALLY SAYING, HEY, I'VE GOT AUTHORITY HERE, WHAT WAS UNCLEAN BEFORE, NOW I'M DECLARING IT CLEAN. So he was using food to make a point about dietary things, but it was also an illustration of something else. What was it an illustration of? Who was coming to him? Where was Peter being invited to go? To the house of Cornelius, the Roman centurion who's leading enemy armies in the epicenter of the local enemy's work. Does Peter, in his Jewish heritage, want to go see Cornelius and want to be in Caesarea? In the flesh? Probably not. And as a person with Jewish background, no way, because a a good person of Jewish background would not go into the house of a Gentile, because then you would be considered unclean. You wouldn't sit and eat with people who are Gentiles because it's a gesture of friendship, and then you would be considered ceremonially unclean. God is doing something significant here with the animals... TO MAKE A MESSAGE TO PETER THAT I'M DECLARING ALL PEOPLE CLEAN. YOU MAY HAVE THOUGHT GENTILES WERE ICKY AND WHATEVER, BUT GUESS WHAT? GOD LOVES THEM, TOO. AND SO WHAT DOES PETER DO? HE INVITES THE PEOPLE IN THAT COME TO HIS HOME SEEKING HIM OUT, AND THEN THE NEXT DAY HE'S OFF AND TRAVELS WITH THEM TO CORNELIUS' PLACE. He goes into his home. They fellowship together. And then he begins sharing the gospel of Jesus again right in his home. And then the story ends this way. If you flip to chapter 10, verse 44, it says this. While Peter was still speaking these words, so the words of the gospel message of Jesus, the Holy Spirit came upon all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter, so the Jewish people that were part of his group, were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles or those who didn't have Jewish background. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They've received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. What we have in Acts chapter 10 is the second Pentecost. Acts chapter 2 is Jewish Pentecost. Acts chapter 10 is Gentile Pentecost. The same spirit comes first to his Jewish people in Jerusalem. And then as the gospel begins advancing around the world, there's an obstacle. Some of the Jewish people who had converted to follow Jesus were still embracing some of the legal elements of their former faith to the point that it excluded others. And God did something in Peter's heart very significant, that opened the door for any of us in this room who do not have Jewish background to also experience a Pentecost where the Spirit comes and lives in us because we've responded to the gospel, Jesus, the gospel of Jesus as well. Today, I want to just bring three observations out of this text. Some are going to begin linking into friendship, I promise you. Um, I know that this is a bit of a stretch today. It's Pentecost Sunday, but I'm trying to bridge a couple things all in the same message here couple of, or three observations. The first is this, from the text. Different, same, effective. Different, same, effective. I tried to keep as few words as possible in case you're taking notes. I originally had a first draft of this first point, and it was like almost two sentences. So, here you go. Different, same, effective. What do we mean by this? I want you to just think about Acts chapter 2 and what happened there, and Acts chapter 10 and what happened there. Different contexts. Jerusalem, Caesarea. Same gospel preached in both places, and that same gospel effective in both places, but very different places. Isn't that fascinating? That should give us a confidence in the work and message of Jesus. The message of Jesus is not just tailored for certain cities or certain people or certain places where it seems like it'll be received best. Different places, same gospel, effective and working in both places. Let me just entertain a few thoughts quickly about the contrasting differences between Jerusalem and Caesarea. When you think about familiarity with God's story and ancient scriptures, did Jerusalem have pretty good familiarity with that? You better believe it. If Caesarea was the epicenter of the enemy's advancing, encroaching work, Jerusalem was the epicenter of all of the Jewish faith. It was saturated with awareness of the story of Yahweh, the story of God. It was saturated with awareness of scriptures. So that was Jerusalem's context. What was it like in Caesarea? Familiarity with that? Very, very little. Isn't it interesting? The gospel worked there, and the gospel still worked here. That should encourage us. Was there in Jerusalem familiarity with Jesus? What do you think? Yes. Significant familiarity with Jesus. Why? He had spent so much time teaching in that area. His crucifixion, his, his resurrection, all occurring in the area of Jerusalem. So people were constantly, if they were close to the Jewish faith there, they were aware of this character, at the very least, called Jesus. Many people were beginning to follow him and devote their lives to him, but there was a heightened awareness of who Jesus claimed to be and who his followers claimed for him to be. In Caesarea. Was there a familiarity with Jesus? Very, very little. Almost none. Jesus never went to Caesarea in his ministry time. So they they didn't have stories floating around from that time that Jesus came to Caesarea and did a miracle or raised somebody from the dead or preached a sermon. They didn't have that memory. There There was very few Christians. We know that Philip had gone to that area. But that context, again, very different. We have... Scripture-saturated Jerusalem, story of God-saturated Jerusalem, even awareness of Jesus-saturated Jerusalem versus Caesarea, which has little to none of those things. So it'd be fair to say, I think, that Jerusalem had a very strong existing gospel framework in place. Right? So that when Peter got up and all the people said, what does this mean? What should we do? He preaches a gospel message and how many people respond? 3,000. Why did so many respond? Well, one of the reasons is there was such a saturation of gospel framework already at work in Jerusalem. In Caesarea, Peter preaches the gospel message again. Same message. It brings about an effective result, but are 3,000 baptized and added? No. A family. A household. Likely Cornelius, his wife and children, and his servants. That's probably who it was. So the results differed. Massive results here, smaller results here, but still gospel results. Was there a difference in approach? I want you to think with this, think through this with me. In Jerusalem, there was proclamation first. Followed up by what? Connection. When we read Acts 2, 42 through 47, remember all the connection that was going on? Proclamation first, then connection. What happened in Caesarea? Connection first, then proclamation. Is that beginning to click for you? I want to ask you uh, a question. I think you know the obvious answer. Would you say that the world has changed a little in the last 25 years? Oh, you're laughing. Hmm. Um, absolutely, it has changed a lot in the last 25 years. In fact, in the last 100 years, there's been enormous worldwide change. And so it's worth us asking, is the Comox Valley Jerusalem or Caesarea? Uh, a couple of years ago, we did a series called Family on a Mission, where we talked about the five generations all... ACTIVE IN THE CHURCH AT THE SAME TIME. AND AS PART OF THAT, WE LAID SOMETHING OUT FOR US TO THINK ABOUT, AND I WANT TO BRING THAT BACK TO YOU. I KNOW WE HAVE MANY NEW PEOPLE WHO WEREN'T HERE FOR THAT, AND I WANT US JUST TO REFRESH OUR THINKING ON THIS TOGETHER. Uh, PEOPLE WHO STUDY HISTORY AND PRESENT AND FUTURE ARE ARTICULATING THINGS A LITTLE BIT LIKE THIS. THERE HAS BEEN A SIGNIFICANT SHIFT IN OUR WORLD COMING FROM THE 20TH CENTURY INTO THE 21ST CENTURY. LET'S GO TO THE FIRST IMAGE, CHRIS. Moving from the 20th century world into the 21st century world. You can see uh, above those two circles is a church, and there's five generations there, and that happens if you can read the small print. It says Comox Pentecostal Church. That's us. We're kind of straddling this enormous social worldwide shift, especially in the Western world that's occurring right now as we as humanity shift from 20th century realities to 21st century realities. Okay, next slide. I want you to see this. What is the 20th century-like, it's like living on land. This is the era your parents or grandparents and great-grandparents grew up in. In the 20th century world, things were static, rational. The world philosophically was still heavily under the influence of modernity. Things were largely predictable. And for our purposes, it's worth pointing out that in the 20th century world, there was a, in the Western world, in Canada and in America, there's an existing biblical framework. That's the generation some of you grew up in, but certainly your parents, your grandparents, and your great grandparents. Many of you know who Billy Graham is. Why was he so successful in filling um, arenas and stadiums? and then preaching the gospel and having people streaming forward to receive Christ. Because he lived in an era where there was a strong biblical framework. And he was hardly introducing people to the notion of the Bible, God, and Jesus. While he was calling people to salvation in Jesus, essentially his message was, come back to God. He wasn't starting from square one with a blank canvas saying, okay, i got to... These people don't even know if they can trust the Bible. They don't know blah, 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 No, the Western world kind of knew the Bible is trustworthy to most people. They kind of believed there was a God. They had been familiar with Jesus, so the message was that. 21st century changes, doesn't it? So if the 20th, uh, 20th century is living on land, the 21st century, next slide, is this. It's like living on water. <laughs> Things are dynamic. Things are unpredictable. And that has produced... A society, especially for Canada, that is now post-modern, post-Christian, and secular. So my question is, do we have an existing gospel framework to work with that was here a generation or two ago? No. I mean, we could, we could rent out a, a local stadium, invite as many people as we want to, it, and I could try to say, come back to God, and people would say back? God? Whereas a few generations ago, they'd be like, you're right, I need to come back to God. So, my next question for you is this, are the people you see regularly in the Comox Valley, your neighbors, your co-workers, your classmates, people you play volleyball or disc golf with or whatever you do, do they live on land or do they live in water? Do they live in Jerusalem or do they live in Caesarea? Yeah, I think you're tracking with me. Here's what evangelism used to be like in the 20th century. Invite somebody to church. That's how it starts, right? Why don't you come to church with me? You don't even have to know somebody very well. You just say, hey, come to church with me. We've got a great event on. We've got this going on. Come to church with me. And then if that goes well, they're going to hear the gospel, right? And then they'll feel the gospel. And then they might have the opportunity to begin to feel a little bit connected to the church. And then after enough time, they might become friends with people in the church, right? That's how it used to work. Why don't you just come to church with me? And a lot of people might consider saying yes to that. And again, it would kind of unfold this way. In our living in water, Caesarea kind of world that we're all in right now, is it still that way? Or is it the absolute reverse I want you to see this here's how it works now we start with friendship you know people that you have in your neighborhood that you you know play sports with or do things with people that you work with and it becomes our opportunity to befriend them some of us might get nervous about that and we're like oh I thought this Bible said something about like don't be friends with the world You know, when scripture instructs us on that, it's saying don't be a friend with the spirit of the world. But look at the example of Jesus. He was sure good at being friends with people of the world, wasn't he? So be friends. Then invite those friends into community where that over time in community, maybe in your small group or your group of friends that play volleyball or disc golf together or whatever, they begin to feel the gospel, which opens their hearts with a readiness to hear the gospel. Where the next natural step. Maybe the last step. Maybe they've already been following Jesus for a while. Is to finally come to church. The reality being. They were probably part of church a lot earlier. Because as soon as they were part of community. And hearing and feeling the gospel. Was that not church? It just wasn't in our Sunday setting. It was, it was church. So. Hence. If you follow along with us in our church vision booklet that we refer to from time to time. Clay referred to this last week as well. This is why we value something called three cups of tea and six other friends. What does that mean? We value relational witness. In, in many Middle Eastern and Asian cultures, they say this, three cups of tea is the time it takes to get to know somebody, for a stranger to turn into a friend. So we value three cups of tea, right? Because You have some people you know who don't know Jesus yet right here in the Comox Valley. You see them regularly. What would it look like for you to have three cups of tea with them and build a friendship? Now, six other friends, where does that come from? Statistically speaking, the number one way adults in North America come to Christ is that they have seven credible Christian friends in their lives. So that means if you're one of them, find six others and don't just team up seven against one. That's weird. But create spaces where you can be together. And you might think it's funny, and I know the disc golfers always frown at me because I keep bringing them up. It means I haven't prepared that part of the message, so I just reach for the first thing that comes to mind, and it's the disc golfers. But now I pick on volleyball too because I'm part of that. But um, find mixed settings where people who are your friends who don't know Jesus yet can begin to become friends with your other friends who do know Jesus. Because... When your friends who don't know Jesus yet start having more friends who do know Jesus, you've, statistically speaking, <laughs> increased their probability of being like, huh, I might have to think some more about this Jesus stuff. Because they're seeing credibility and reality in your faith. We value relational Witness, three cups of tea, and six other friends. Also in our booklet, we talk about four things that everyone in our church is called to. We're all called to Jesus. We're all called to Sundays. We're called to DNA relationships, which we talked about a few weeks ago. And we're all called to this idea called gospel intentionality together. What would it look like for the things that you're already doing with Christian friends, like the normal stuff? I'm not talking about your prayer meetings. I'm talking about if you get together to watch the Survivor finale or something like that. What would it look like to add gospel intentionality to watching the Survivor finale? Well, it might be just... Good food and inviting some other friends, neighbors, coworkers, whatever, into that mix so that you can have fun together and they start becoming friends with your friends. Creating mixed spaces that are safe for people to begin to connect with others. Okay, that's the first thought. I know it was a big one. Different, same, effective. I think you're with me. On to number two. Everyone needs open heart surgery. Everyone needs open heart surgery. Where do we see this in the text? Peter, look at what God did in Peter's life. Peter came from a background that highly discriminated against unclean Gentiles. And here he is, staying with Simon the Tanner, and then invites these messengers into a home with him, then goes and stays in Caesarea at Cornelius' house for several days, fellowshipping, eating with him, sharing the gospel with him. Something significant changed in Peter's heart. His heart was open to the work of God. You and I are praying for people in the Comox Valley to discover the love and truth of Jesus. So we need to pray for them to have open heart surgery too. But friends, you and I need open heart surgery. There are people, whether you realize it or not, that we have some built-in prejudice against for whatever reason. And will we be willing to let our hearts become more open to people who don't follow Jesus yet? Guess what? People who don't follow Jesus yet, they live a very different life than most of us. Their humor, their entertainment... The list goes on. It's different, it's different. It can make you feel uncomfortable. Imagine how uncomfortable Peter felt. But his heart was open and he was willing to become a friend. And you and I have some people in our lives that we see regularly here that you, you, you might want to think strange thoughts about them because they appear just so different or so weird or whatever. But what could a friendship do to their life if you would allow your heart to be open to God's work in your heart? I just quickly want to share a couple stories for our own journey. Both Laura and I have grown up in like a very polished Christian bubble. Great Christian families, thankful for our parents. Um, Even when I was working labor jobs, my employer was a Christian and most of my co-workers were Christians. Then I went to Bible college. I had done some years of Christian school. Um, we just grew up in and around church all the time, and then we got thrust into ministry for the first several years of ministry, and then we went on a church planting journey in Victoria, and I had all these ideas of, we're gonna have a big team to work with, and that didn't work out, and so literally, we're on the ground in Victoria, at the time, just two kids, and Laura and I, and I'm like, I can't even pretend to be busy doing church stuff, because I got no church stuff to do. I've got to reach people, and I just don't know how to relate to the people that are here, because they're so different than us, and so God had to do open heart surgery in us. Because we lived in a very eclectic neighborhood where there was people, atheists and spiritualists and all kinds of Mm -hmm. interesting stuff that I just never, I'd I'd never had friends like that in my life. And so we learned how to party, (laughs) which uh, is not my nature, but we just were like, well, we're going to start opening up our home and having people in our home regularly. And this doesn't mean all of you have to do that. This is just part of our story. We just we're going to start opening our home and letting people come in and do meals together and things like that. And one time we have one of these meals happening in our yard and in our house, and there's 30 to 40 people there. And we're just meeting some of these people from our neighborhood, and we're having a lot of fun together. And I'm sitting with this one really fun couple. They were a little older than us, very dynamic, fun to sit with. I'm like, this is going good. And so I'm like, what do you guys do? And so he talks a little bit about what he's into, and it didn't really make sense, but it was cool. I'm like, oh, that's, that's great. What do you do? I asked her, Megan. Oh, I'm a psychic. (laughs) So I kicked them out. (laughs) No. I packed the kids up and locked them in a room and put on veggie tails. (laughs) No. I said, wow. That's so interesting. I haven't met a psychic before. She said, I know. No, I'm just joking. And they left after the event, and Laura and I were cleaning up and, and put the kids to bed and then just chatting about how fun the party was. And I said, that, that couple was really fun, but that's, she's a psychic. I, this feels weird. Like There's dark spirituality, I think, connected to this. I don't know what we do about this. And, but we decided together, let's open our hearts to these people. They walk by our house every day as they walk their kids to the same school our kids go to. And so it started that we began walking with them sometimes. And anytime they walked by, we would stop and have a chat with them. And we began opening our hearts to a friendship with them. One day, his name was Darren. Um, he came by himself without her. And while we we're walking, he's like, Hey, Mike, um, I need your guys' email address. I, uh, any chance? I, I'm just wondering if you could help me with something. He said, I, I want to propose to Megan. And could you guys help with that? And I'm thinking, you want to surprise a psychic? You do need help. <laughs> I say, yeah, I'm in. I'm in. And I thought, that's amazing that he, he would include us in this big part of his life, in their life. And so Laura and I were part of helping with some of this stuff that went down. And she was surprised. And uh, we were invited to the after party. And so off to the after party, we went at their place. And honestly, we felt so out of place because who's at the after party? all of her clients and colleagues from Victoria, witches, people in witchcraft, like just, and here us, we're like the Flanders family from the Simpsons, <laughs> trying to talk it up with these people. And God was teaching us how to open our hearts to people who are very broken and very different. Um, we met another person through this school that our kids went to, um, our son Lyndon had a friend, and so Laura got together with the mom, and her name was Leslie, and she had Chinese background, she had come from China a few years earlier or so, atheist, um, but lonely, and so started having tea at our house regularly and hanging out from time to time, and so we said, you should come to one of these parties we have sometime, oh, sure, so she came. And her son loved it because there was all kinds of fun stuff for the kids at them. And she had a great time. And as things were being cleaned up at the end, uh, some of the people that came to our parties were part of our small group that did meet weekly on a different night. And Leslie overheard some people say, see you Wednesday. She said, what, what's Wednesday? Oh, a few of us get together on Wednesdays. Oh, really? What, like for the same kind of thing? Well, kind of. We do a potluck meal. But um, those of us that get together on Wednesdays, we all like, we all follow Jesus. So we read scripture together. We pray for each other. Oh, you know, Leslie, you'd be welcome to come for the meal. You could stay for the whole thing if you like, but if you just want to eat with us and then leave, if you're uncomfortable with the rest, you could do that. Or, stay. Oh, really? Yeah. So she came to our small group the next, day, next week, and she ended up staying for the whole thing and watched what we did, and then she came another week, and then she came another week, and she became a regular part of our small group. It started with a friendship with Laura, but then she came into community with our people, and she wasn't following Jesus, but she was just watching and observing and enjoying the sense of friendship, and... After several weeks of Wednesdays, she heard some of our people say, well, see you Sunday, as we were heading out the door. And she's like, what, you guys get together on Sundays too? (laughs) And we said, oh, yeah, yeah, actually, we're part of a church that has other groups like this one, and we all gather together on Sundays to worship Jesus together, and there's teaching from Scripture, and oh. I said, you're welcome if you ever want to come. It's going to be a very different experience for you. I might come sometime. And so, sure enough, she showed up one Sunday, and it was the best thing. You see, <laughs> in an old version of church, it was so important to have greeters at the door. And we—I'm so thankful for the greeters we have at the door here. But when Leslie came to church on the first Sunday, she didn't need a single greeter. She walked past the greeters that she didn't know and ran in, hugging the 30 people she did know, and felt at home right away. And she would sit sort of near the back and watch what was going on. And one of our friends secretly got a picture of her and sent it to us. It looked like she was trying to sing the songs this week. It's amazing. And weeks passed and turned into months, and she was coming regularly there. And one day, one of our ushers asked me, he said, is Leslie a Christian now? I said, "Uh, I actually don't know for sure. Like, we don't have a clear answer on that. But I'll tell you what I do know. I said, we gave her a Bible at Christmas, and she told us that um, she reads her Bible every day. Uh, She also told us that after she drops her son off at school, she goes to the beach and prays every day. And um, she comes to our small group every week. She comes to church every Sunday. At our last party that we threw in the neighborhood, she started evangelizing to other people about Jesus at the party. And our treasurer just told me she started giving to the church. I said, I think she's a better Christian than me. Um, (laughs) But I actually don't know if she's committed to following Jesus yet. (laughs) And... A few weeks later, in our small group, we're sitting around having discussion time and preparing for prayer, and Leslie was sitting on the floor, a few others were on the floor too, she said, can I just share something before we pray? I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. She said, I, I have been loving just discovering and exploring what you believe, and um, she always called um, God, Jesus God, and we never corrected her, we just loved it. And she said, I, I'm just trying to figure out this Jesus God stuff, and I, I, I've been hoping it's true, but I just, I don't know if I can believe it. But she said, do you guys know Tim Hortons? And <laughs> we're like, yeah, we know Tim Hortons. She said, do you know Roll Up the Rim? And we're like, yep. She said, I went through the drive-thru this week and, and I got a coffee and, and then I pulled over and I said, God, God Jesus, if you're real, I want to win. <laughs> And I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> and she said, so everybody in our small group is like leaning in at this point, she said. And so I drank my coffee and then I rolled up, up the rim. Oh, look at the time, I can't finish the story now. Um, <laughs> I'll finish the story next Sunday, I promise, in part two of this message. Third point for today. Third point for today. It's 10.23. I've got to land this plane somehow. Third point for today. Chris, you've got to put it up there. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. 10.23. Some people think regular church attendance is like two times a month, but I hope you'll be here next week. You get the rest of the story. Um, Listen to this. I'm going to try my best to land the plane here, and then we're going to pray, okay? Acts chapter 10. You heard what I read earlier about Cornelius, and then it describes him this way. He and his family were devout, God-fearing, gave generously to those in need, prayed to God regularly, and then he has an angelic encounter. Sounds like a dynamic Christian, doesn't he? What we learn from Acts chapter 11, he is not saved. Read what happened to him in like Acts chapter 10, verse 2. He sounds like he should be a board member in any church, anywhere. But according to Acts chapter 11... Not saved. Not saved. Have you ever met people in your life who you're like, these people are so good. They should still go to heaven, right? (laughs) This is Cornelius. Some of us may read this story and think, wow, what an awesome guy. I bet Luke includes this story in his story of what's going on in Acts to say, Look at how awesome Cornelius was. He deserved to get saved. That's why the angel came to him. I think it might be there for the opposite reason. No matter how good Cornelius would was, he didn't have Jesus. He was hopeless. He was helpless until he had Jesus. This story lives in Scripture to teach us that Pentecost isn't just a one-time thing for one ethnic group. It's for all groups of people, including Gentiles. And it's not just for people who are the furthest away from God. It's, from the pe- it's also for the people who appear closest but they still don't have Jesus yet. And so they're just as far away as everybody else is. And that's urgent. And that's important. Pentecost is the spirit of God coming upon us. Empowering you and I to be a witness in a world that's very broken and hurting. And you and I could never reach them well on our own. You and I could never bring the love of Jesus on our own. Or the power of Jesus on our own. But together with other friends. And together with the infilling and presence of the Spirit in our lives, there's a hope and there's a chance for God to do something significant in and around us because there is no one like Jesus and without the message of Jesus all perish. There is no other name by which people can be saved. Not even a good Cornelius. The best Roman centurion there ever was. Only Jesus. I want to close by Reading two things that have just meant a lot to me this week, given what our family's been going through. And I know you know what it's like to go through difficulty, too. Why is Jesus significant? Two things, really quickly. This was just in my devotional reading this week. And don't you love how scriptures you've read so many times before all of a sudden arrive with a new freshness? Psalm 118, verse 15 Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. Woo, isn't that good? I bypassed that verse. I've read it so many times before, but this time I thought, why in the world are they shouting in tents with victory? Well, they lived in tents. Well, that's a funny place to win a victory, isn't it? Why are they shouting in tents? Because they're not the ones doing the fighting. The Lord is the one doing the fighting. The next verse says, It's the Lord's right hand that has done mighty things. This is how we fight our battles. By resting in the house of the Lord and letting him do the heavy lifting. Tim Keller, who died about 10 days ago. I saw a clip and I just thought it was stunning. He talked about the children of Israel passing through the Red Sea. The sea is divided up and there is piles of water high on one side and piles high on the other. And all of God's people are walking through in the midst of the wondrous work of God. God's mighty hand there. And Tim pointed out, he said, can you imagine being part of that group of people all walking through and so many of them are thinking, wow, God is amazing. This is unbelievable. And they're praising Yahweh through it all. And he said this and I thought it was great. But I promise you there were other people that were part of that same group walking through, looking up at the water thinking, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. Oh my goodness, this is going awful. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I don't know what's going to happen. And guess what? All the ones who were praising Yahweh got through, and all the ones who were afraid got through too, because your salvation doesn't hinge on the quality of your faith. Your salvation hinges upon the quality of our Savior, only Jesus. Let's stand together. God gestures friendship to Cornelius, and he does to you and I as well. Today is Pentecost Sunday, and for a closing benediction, I want to read to you the words William Booth penned in a hymn 150, 200 years ago for Pentecost. Thou Christ of burning, cleansing flame, send the fire. Thy blood-bought gift today we claim. Send the fire today. Look down and see this waiting host. Give us the promised Holy Ghost. We want another Pentecost. Send the fire today. God of Elijah, hear our cry. Send the fire to make us fit to live or die. Send the fire today to burn up every trace of sin, to bring the light and glory in. The revolution now begins. Send the fire today. Tis fire we want, for fire we plead. Send the fire. The fire will meet our every need. Send the fire today for strength to ever do the right, for grace to conquer in the fight, for power to walk this world in white. Send your fire today. To make our weak hearts strong and brave, send the fire. To live a dying world to save, send the fire today. O oh, see us on thy altar lay, our lives are all this very day. To crown the offering now we pray, send the fire today. Would you hold out your hands? Father, I thank you for our church family. This Pentecost Sunday, we acknowledge that you are God, not just of one Pentecost, but multiple And we ask for the fire of your spirit to move in our lives again. Empower us to befriend people who are very lost and broken and don't know you yet. And through our friendships together and with them. May there be a great move of your spirit in this community and around the world. We need you Holy Spirit. I'm going to invite the prayer ministry team to come forward right now. As we conclude today, if you need prayer for anything at all, this group would love, love, love to pray with you, pray for you. God bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you today and this whole week long. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.